was uh, did I hear right there? Did I hear Ed Pettit say that there is nobody happier than a boy who is about to go to camp? Did I hear him say that? Uh, <laughs> you know, this this little shot came whistling out of the out of the monitor loudspeaker. I was about four studios away when Ed let off with that with that uh, line drive. And uh, I was about four studios away when it came out, and and uh, I hadn't even thought anything about this situation or this scene for like 150 years, and I had no idea about doing anything like this or even talking about this thing. But hearing that line, I was instantly reminded of the time that I went to camp, and I... <laughs> oh, I'll tell you the story. You want to hear the sad story about the time I went to camp and, 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 uh, and the terrible... Uh, the terrible feeling, you know, it's like everything else. I guess, I guess what uh, uh, many things are better in theory than they are in practice. Now, camp is a great theory, but in practice, it turns out to be a lot of poison ivy and snakes. And uh, <laughs> now, I'm not being <laughs> anti-camp. It's just like it's like when you read, you know, when you read a story about the wonders of New York, and uh, you read you read Esquire's always having things like special New York issue. And they show a picture of Park Avenue at, at dusk with the Seagram building all lit up. You know, this is New York. Uh, oh, yeah, you know that scene. It always shows a boy and a girl running over a long stretch of beach at Fire Island. Well, at least they're supposed to be a boy and a girl. Anyway, they're running along. Uh, that's what the caption reads. Uh, it's hard to tell the players these days without numbers or scorecards or something, but... Uh, or fingerprints or something. But nevertheless, they never tell you about a guy. Uh, to me, New York will always be a solitary figure at 4 o'clock in the morning driving his 1958 Ford around the same block for over three and a half hours waiting for somebody to move out so he can get a parking place. Hour after hour. Uh, I don't know whether you know, uh, any of you guys who live outside of New York know about the great automobile marathon that goes on here. <laughs> Oh yeah, and and uh, and everybody's life uh, who lives uh, anywhere in near Manhattan, in Manhattan certainly, everybody's life is gauged on that leaping out at a certain time of the day. It says you can't park between eleven and two. Uh, everybody's life is gauged. In fact, I know a guy who has hired an elderly lady who do, does nothing but sit by his car. And at exactly the right moment, she gets in and drives it to the the opposite side of the street. She <laughs> he can hire her cheaper than he can go to Kenny. Uh, so uh, you know, oh yeah, a life is like that. They never mention these things. Uh, of course, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with uh, New York. <laughs> uh, I don't bet of it. But uh, there are a lot of things that are difficult about New York. They they I think life is more difficult, literally difficult in New York than any place in the Western world, probably any place in the world. Difficult, just plain difficult. Doing the littlest thing in New York is a fantastic struggle. Like if you get addressed to you, if, if say, a parent, uh, one day in your mailbox comes a thing that says, there is a package at the post office. Do you realize what this means to a guy in New York? This means two weeks off he's got to take. He's got to take two weeks off and he's got to start... <laughs> He's got to start looking for post office number 422-6SJ7. And he finally gets there, and there are 18 different windows and lines and guys he's got to see. And finally he arrives there, and it turns out he doesn't have the right kind of identification. He's got to go back home. And it goes on and on and on and on. Uh, just a little thing, you know. In, in the other places, you know, other towns, they just walk out and go into the next place, and they give it to him. You know, it's just as simple as that. Uh, life in New York, yes, life in New York 
is uh, no, no, you're wrong. Oh no, a, a do, that's this is the great illusion that poor people have that rich guys get their stuff from the mailboxes. No, listen, I yeah, it's no nothing at all. You go down to the post office there, and it is nothing, not not uncommon. You'll see 4,500 sweating people waiting to get their package at the post office, and right in the middle of them is, say, Alec Guinness. Uh, no, Don, this is, I'm sorry, uh, You do you live in Manhattan? Oh, I'm talking about anything. I am talking about anything. Oh, no, 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 that's the great illusion. Money will do everything. Well, all right, Dad, uh, <laughs> good luck. Get a lot of money and, and watch. Uh, I, I only want to say here that that uh, that in in a small town it does not take a lot of money to have convenience. In a town like Manhattan, even money won't buy much. It'll buy a little more than the next guy, but not much, and it comes awful high. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, speaking of convenience and money, I, I see here uh, things are moving up upward and onward. A magazine called True, you know, it comes right out of True. Somehow the idea of a magazine called True has always uh, seemed uh, <laughs> right and fitting. Right. Magazines are called True, Time, Life, Fortune, Doe, uh, stuff like that. Uh, a magazine called True, and they have a picture here, a big picture of a guy. He's wearing a, a high silk hat, and he's got on a white uh, tie. He's in white tie and tails, actually. I can see why he has trouble. Anybody who, who today, when he's going out for a big night in the town, puts on a high silk hat and has one of these rented tuxedos, this guy is strictly from Circleville, Ohio, and is never going to make it. He's, he belongs to one of these dynamic friendship clubs, you know. <laughs> uh, and here, he, here he's standing there, and he's with an inflatable girl. Uh, it, uh, you can, you can buy this girl now. She's inflatable. And, uh, I'll read to you. It says, for fun humor. And then the one simple word, which, uh, they don't quite explain, gaiety. <laughs> gaiety. And, and there's a little picture you see that I think is rather interesting here. Uh, rather fascinating. Little tiny picture. They don't show, it shows in the background, a little, little drawing. It shows a guy in swimming with the inflatable girl. And there he is, all by himself in the swimming pool, and next to him is the inflatable girl. Boy, does it say something about, about uh, uh, what does it say? Does it say more about women, or does it say more about men? Which does it say more about? That there is on the market now an inflatable person, and it's a woman. I wonder if there is, will, and will be eventually uh, uh, available an inflatable man for chicks. Uh, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> well, here it is. Instant party doll for office, beach, party, or pool. Here's today's newest fun toy. She sits, stands, dances, and floats. This instant party girl is the new dimension in dolls, I'll say. She stands 5 feet 5 and measures 40, 20, 40. An instant inflatable beauty molding of flesh vinyl with lovely soft skin finish. A great gift idea. Anybody comes along and gives me an inflatable redhead. And uh, <laughs> it's a great gift idea. She's the doll with the inflatable and the inflated ego. Inflated ego. You should see her. Uh, available in blonde, brunette, or redhead. Now, uh, I. it says, uh, oh, by the way, money back guarantee you must be deliriously satisfied. And uh, you can get this chick here. It's inflatable. Now, now there is something in our world that produces a kind of rightness for the idea of that. Now, I wonder what we would think 
if somewhere along the line we discovered that one of the ancient tribes, let's say in Egypt, uh, had, an, had, had an artificial human being that people had in their place, their pool or their pad, an artificial human being which uh, provided them with something. There would be endless, uh, endless theories about that. And yet, I don't see many sociologists writing about this, the inflatable girl. You know what is what is particularly eerie about this, and uh, I have to I have to make a personal comment here is that is that about five years ago I don't know whether any of you remember this in a long uh, Sunday night hot Sunday night peregrination I was going along at a hot uh, non air conditioned studio working with a hostile engineer and uh, we were working along it was about. Oh, one o'clock in the morning. And somewhere I got on the subject of people being today largely afraid of other people. Uh, I recall uh, talking about the idea that so many of the books that are available on the market today are about how to fool other people, how to get along with other people, how to make other people love you. And it all boils down to a fear of other people, which is really rampant in this country. Uh, if not in the world today, a real fear of other people. Now, some people uh, put their fear in the, into a very definite form. They join a group, an ism or something, and they have a genuine, absolute, written-down platform that says, blow up the other guys, the rotten ones. Uh, generally, they do this in the, in the guise of patriotism. They do it uh, with all kinds of high uh, ideals and so on. But it all boils down, blow up the bad guys, the other ones. Uh, this this is a this is part of the, this is the most obvious kind, and yet all the way down through the line of of human values today, you find uh, a fear of one group for another. You find you find racial groups are all arrayed one against the other. You find religious groups arrayed one against the other. States hate each other now today. Political parties. Oh, it's wild until till. Oh, I'll turn it a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. This studio, we're not you there. Yeah, I, I can hear it. Well, popping kind of helps those guys with those five-inch, uh, the Sony uh, little things out there. But nevertheless, uh, it all boils down to a fear of people. And yet, being a herd animal, we've got to have people. And so, about five years ago, I came up with the idea that eventually you would be able to get artificial people who can't hurt you. You will be able to get an inflatable chick. I remember specifically saying that more and more men are afraid of women, but still they dig women, you know? But they're afraid of real women. It's the Playboy syndrome. You know, the, the whole thing that, that the center fold out is much greater than any chick who, who, <laughs> who's around, you know? So, so, uh, so eventually it had to come that you could buy. Uh, I, I just, I said it funny. I said it, you know, I was being facetious. And I said, eventually you'll be able to buy uh, 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 an inflatable girl that will provide companionship, gaiety, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a guy will have a date with his inflatable chick. And he'll put her in the convertible next to him, and he'll drive all around town, and the, and the wind will blow through her hair, and uh, she'll be there, you know. And she'll never open her trap. She'll be fantastic. She'll look lovely, beautiful. The sun will shine, and he'll sit there and drive his new, his new Thunderbird around, and there will be the, the, the perfect companion will be with him. Now, I, I did this thing just as a, as a bit, and now here it is. Very scary. <laughs> Speaking of inflatable people, this is WOR, AM at FM, New York. And uh, you got the little uh, cartridge in there, Don? All righty. Uh, 
sneak up Welcome on board, sir. Who is the ailman? Your stateroom <laughs> is ready, sir. Oh, you know, some families now you can buy inflatable rubber kids for families who want kids but the hate kids. would like you to dine with him. Three out of four men every time choose the bowler keener tasting ale. Can I get you anything, sir? Valentine. You thirst for adventure, for something new. You try a Valentine ale. This one's different. <laughs> Bolder, keener, more to the point. Suddenly, you're a confirmed Valentine ale man. Welcome aboard, ale man. Who is the ale man? He could be you. A man with a thirst for a manly approved. Three out of four men. Every time, choose the bolder, keener tasting ale. All right, now let's see. We also have uh, Pottery of All Nations. Oh, hey, listen, uh, uh, Okinawan mug fans. Uh, I have just received a, a special message from Larry Lewis down at the Pottery of All Nations that they have a minute supply, a minute quantity of Okinawan mugs has freshly arrived from the caves in Okinawa where little underpaid Okinawan slaves have kneaded out of the bare, hard granite of the soil of ancient Okinawa mugs for the slobs up in Darien to drink their coffee from. And uh, seriously, though, these are beautiful mugs. Uh, these these are, the are, are, are uh, well, they are Okinawan handmade mugs. Everyone's different. They lean, they tilt. Uh, they got a strangely sinister, uh, primeval look about them. Uh, they're not for chicks. They weigh four pounds a peach. And if you don't know about them, go down. They've just got a few of them. It's at the it's at the Pottery of All Nations on Sheridan Square, in the village at 64th and Lexington and Route 4 in Paramus. Okay, all right. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, of the unreality, of course, uh, now the World's Fair is beginning to shake down in more ways than one. There's been plenty of. Pro- <laughs> I'm sorry, that just slipped out. It's funny, uh, but but the there was an article, I believe it was in the Saturday Review, to the effect that the World's Fair uh, here in New York uh, co- has killed pop art because the World's Fair is the greatest, most colossal, most vulgar, uh, most uh, everything piece of pop art that it's conceivable to build. Nothing can top it. I don't care what Rauschenberg does. He'll have to build, believe me, he'll have to build a statue of jigs 27 miles high with a 3,000-foot Maggie standing next to him. It just that's He'll have to do that. At the top, uh, the World's Fair. Well, there, there are all kinds of things that come out of the fair. Uh, just they keep trickling out one by one, little, little things. Because uh, a fair, you see, is a kind of thing almost like a war. It's a major event. In people's lives, it, uh, it it breaks the the stream, the current of life of living and just being around. It's like this this camp thing that Eddie brought up here. Yeah, should I tell you the story about the camp? I shouldn't really mention camps because everybody thinks camps are great except kids who go to them. Uh, oh yes, uh, that that well, there are two kinds of kids really. That's true. Just like there are two kinds of male adults when they grow up, there are the guys, the sluggers, you know. There are the guys that take over, uh, who run the bowling alleys, who run the football team, the whole scene. Then there's the other guys. Well, this is the way it is with camps. 
And I, I was a Boy Scout in the, <laughs> in the, in a place in the, in the Midwest where the idea of going to a camp was not like uh, New York, of course, where kids are shipped to camp the way food is put in the frozen food locker. It's just an automatic thing. Uh, three days after the kid gets out of school in the, in the, in the springtime, he is automatically shipped off to camp. I suspect that by the year 1970, parents will rarely see their children until one day he has delivered to them a grown-up, already graduated doctor of philosophy from MIT or Harvard. He will be delivered to them. He will make a brief address at their doorstep and tell them they've been magnificent parents and go on to populate Saturn. Uh, they'll have nothing whatsoever to do with them because I think, I think basically parents don't want anything anymore to do with their kids. Uh, and yet, you know, we're part of an old world that says you should. Uh, we're part of an old world that, that keeps saying that you should. And, and, and millions of people feel that if they hadn't had the kid, they'd have been a great actress. Uh, if they haven't had the kid, they would have written a great novel. They would have gone out to live in Paris on the left bank for a couple of years, and they would have showed Hemingway what writing was, boy. But look what I did now. I got three kids. How am I going to leave the age? And so on. So it goes on and on and on. Uh, even Scrooge never talked about Tiny Tim the way many guys talk about their kids secretly in their little innermost recesses of their mind. So society has made it possible to get rid of the kid uh, and yet at the same time make it seem like you're doing them a good thing. Send them to camp. Send them to day school. Send them to any place. But don't keep them around the house because we all know that a home environment today is considered a bad environment. Send them off to, to Miss Bundy's kindergarten prep school where she will prep for kindergarten. And then when she gets into kindergarten, she will prep for first grade. Uh, until finally today, I suspect there will be pre-prep, prep-prep, pre-prep schools, uh, which the kid will start attending at the age of six months. Uh, he will be given creative bottles and creative rattles. Uh, <laughs> what is a creative toy? Is that ever a, is that ever a, a contradiction in, uh, in, in meaning right there? Uh, contradiction in two words. But uh, I remember, uh, I'm the kid, you see, I have to tell you, I was a kid once, and I was in this Boy Scout troop, and one uh, season, uh, it was announced that the Boy Scout Council of our, of our local, whatever it is that the Boy Scouts have, had set up a camp in Michigan. It was about uh, 75, 80 miles away from where we were festering there, and they were going to have selected Boy Scouts, uh, two or three kids from every troop would go to this camp. Uh, the kids that tied the greatest knots, uh, that uh, carved the best totem pole, uh, that made the best sheep shank, and you know, that made the best uh, slip thing for the for the neckerchief and all that stuff got the most. And of course, all the kids immediately began to work like fiends on this thing. Well, I had something going for me that that the rest of the kids in our troop did not have going for them. I was hung. On, on electronics. You know, at that time, I was about 12, you know, about the, uh, you know, uh, I was a Boy Scout age, and I was about 12, and I was building radios, one tube, two tube radios, and I was, I was learning the code. I was, I was already beginning preparations to become an amateur, and this was very esoteric. All the rest of the kids were doing things like, uh, well, you know what kids do. They, uh, they build a model of a fort. 
uh, or they learn to make fire by rubbing two sticks together, or they build a board and they put knots on it. You know, this is a big project. Or they collect twigs of the region. And all the while, I am building two-tube, super-regenerative, short-wave receivers. And my, my, my scoutmaster was, of course, gassed by this. He completely gassed. Because for years, apparently, he was like a lot of men who came out of an earlier, earlier generation, who, to them, electricity was magic, totally magic. And he knew nothing whatsoever about it, and he always felt that if, uh, oh, like things, if, if there was a wire laying on the ground, don't touch it, it'll electrocute you, just a piece of wire, six-inch piece of wire, live wire. That was one of his favorite words. Don't w- watch out for live wires. You're in the middle of the primeval wilderness, you've got to watch for live wires. And he was really scared about electricity. And so as my entry into the big Boy Scout, they had a thing called the Jamboree, I brought my aluminum receiver that I had built, aluminum panel, you know, down with aluminum chassis. It was a two-tube, super-regenerative receiver with a 56 and a 57-tube, a little AC power supply, and hand-wound coils, plug-in coils. And I set it up at the high school gym, and I ran the antenna out, and I put a loudspeaker up, and I am beginning to, uh, you know, everybody came, all the parents came then in the jamboree, and I am in my little booth, and my receiver is going, and you can hear code coming out. Well, all it was, of course, was press wireless being batted out in Chicago about 20 miles away, but it sounded, you know, and I'm sitting there with earphones, and it's all going, and I looked like magic. I knew this, you know, I was hooking it up already. So, uh, by the way, I was a terrible boy scout. I stayed a second-class scout uh, until finally they came around, and they said, all guys that have been in grade for over two years are going to get passed over in the next jamboree, and I was in grade as a second-class for two years. That's the truth. Uh, and I was it's a terrible scout. I never got merit badges. Uh, I, you know, this kind of stuff. I don't know. I would come to the meetings. I'd tie the bowline knots and holler and hit guys and run around. and that kind of But when it came to sitting down and learning how to, to tie knots and stuff, this was a real drag. So I, I built this radio and got the scene. This was the jamboree in the spring. And they had little exhibits from the various troops, Troop 41, Troop 42, Troop 7, Troop 6. All the ace troops were there. You know, the the Eagle Scout kids with the hats and the neckerchiefs. And there, over in the corner of the gym, is this little squirt. Me with my hat on my head, my second-class pin, my earphones on, and the code booming out all over the gym. And I had my amplifier. I had a, I had a, I don't know, a six-watt amplifier done, and I could just cover that gym like a, like a fiend with with uh, with code. And all the other guys are, you know, they're trying to explain knots, you know. And I had about science always does it, friends. I must have had. 500 people gathered around my booth and all the kids with the little models of the ships and the guys with their little knot collections and the twig. I was completely upstaging the crowd. And so then I'd tune, you know, I'd get it on the edge of regeneration. And men would come over and say to me, well, say, uh, I used to build radios. I, I'll never forget I used to build uh, What is that? And I'd say, well, that is the tickler coil. Uh, the tickler coil is used to couple the plate circuit with it. It gives you regeneration, which provides you a signal, which is, in a sense is a kind of regenerative detection circuit. And I'm, I, you know, a snotty little brat, and I'm, t- I'm telling you that. I said, now, this is a very critical thing here. The coupling between the tickler coil and the grid coil is, now watch, huh? and I'm, I'm demonstrating. Now, here I have an adjustable grid leak here, which provides 
And poor old Gordon, his, this the whole thing. And he kept saying, well, uh, folks, uh, over here is, uh, I want you to look at Tommy Doremus's birch bark canoe, which he built. <laughs> the kid spent two years making a birch bark canoe. Nobody looks at it. <laughs> Except his Aunt Emily is over there looking at it. So she gave him the beads for to put around the edge. And, and, and so so I've got my rotten little radio. And, of course, a lot of mothers were mad and everything. And, and my radio was it was a real smash. I was a real smash. It was like a little world's fair. And I was, a, I was the smash at this little jamboree. Well, a couple of weeks later, it was announced that the three best exhibits at the gym, at the big jamboree from the from the local, the, the, whatever they call it, the, the local Boy Scout organization, the best three exhibits were led by Guess Who's Two-Tube Doorly Super Regenerative Shortwave Receiver <laughs> with plug-in coils and aluminum panel, hand-wound, hand-made to prevent hand-capacity coupling. <laughs> well, I there it was. I won. And, and some kid that had a giant display of icicle tracks or something, he won. Another kid that had a rock collection from southern Kentucky counties, he won. And there the three of us snotty kids were there. And, I, of course, I was the top. It was, it was, it was absolutely then uh, a shoe-in uh, that, that we were going to be among the first contingent to get set to camp. And uh, I, I went home and I said, Mom, I'm going to go to camp. She said, Camp? You know, nobody in my family. Camp? Camp? What is camp? Uh, camp? Uh, there was no such thing as camp in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a mill town in Indiana. Camp? What is camp? Camp something has to do with the army or, or, or going somewhere with a tent. You know, but a camp. I am going to the camp. Of course, in New York and in, in this whole eastern seaboard area now, camp is as much a way of life as, uh, you know, going to school or something. But camp was a totally foreign concept. And, and I was going to camp. And my mother, well, what, do you, what do you take to camp? So I, I don't know. I'm going to camp. She said, well, what do you do at camp? Well, uh, well, I, I, I don't know. You go to camp. I just go at camp. And of course, I'm a reader of Boy's Life, and I figured what you do is track things and and uh, you look for moss on trees and this kind of stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't had no, no idea. Well, about three or four days later, after I got my notification, I received a, a thing in the mail from the local Boy Scout headquarters. What to take to camp. And you had to have, I remember vividly, absolutely vividly, you had to have a muslin mattress cover. They called it a tick cover, something like that. A tick? Mattress tick? You ever hear such a thing? You're supposed to have a Muslim mattress tick. Uh, you have a Muslim mattress tick. You have two pairs of shorts. I had never owned a pair of shorts in my life. You know, all the kids today own these shorts. They never had no shorts. And I had to have two pairs of shorts. I had to have one canteen. I had to have one camp axe. I had to have a waterproof matchbox. <laughs> I had to have a compass. I had to have, I had to have, uh, I had to have camp trail moccasins, and you know, I, I, I had this list, and I go, I go to my mother, and I says, my, I, I, what's a mattress tick? I said, what's a, what's a mattress tick? I mean, we, we had nothing, you know, we had mattresses. We didn't, a mattress cover was a later discovery in our house. We didn't, you know, we had a mattress. By the way, uh, we had a mattress that went back to the late 17th century. And, and there had been at least 24 generations of people raised on it. And, and it, was, <laughs> it was fascinating when you'd ever look at this thing in the light, <laughs> the incredible number of different types of stains on a mattress. But uh, here, here, you know, my mother says, a mattress tick. What is a mattress tick? And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, it's, a, it's a mattress cover. 
She says, well, what do you mean a mattress cover? And, and of course, we've got a mattress, got stripes on it. And, and she, what, what do you do? You take the stuffing out of a mattress? What is this mattress cover? And, and nobody in the family could figure out what a mattress cover was. And so my mother called Mr. Gordon and said, "What, uh, Mr. Gordon, uh, Gene has got his, his, uh, his list for camp, and there's a thing on the list. It says mattress cover. Uh, she didn't want to seem to be uh, ignorant. Uh, she wanted, you know, didn't want to quite say, well, what is a mattress cover? She says, well, uh, uh, it says mattress cover. Uh, uh, what? A muslin? Oh, uh, well, how long? Oh, what for? Oh, I see. Uh-huh. I see. Uh, yeah. Uh, now, now, another thing. Uh, uh, um, a waterproof matchbox. Uh, waterproof matchbox. You know, we were strictly in the diamond matchbox world. You know, with a little wooden side, the waterproof matchbox. And she, waterproof matchbox. Waterproof matchbox was because they were always advertising when the Boy Scout manuals. They were like fourteen dollars. You know, screw the top. <laughs> anyway, the upshot of it was that my family went into hock, and for two days, my mother is making a mattress cover out of out of uh, muslin ticking. That's a ticking. That's the stuff they call it. It's a kind of a white, grubby fabric. And she was making a mattress cover. And, of course, by now, it is not quite the same as it had been the day I was notified that I was about to win. Not quite the same. It's getting a little a little sticky. And other kids in the troop that are going, of course, there's a couple of kids that got dough, a couple of families got money, and they're down there with their uniforms. And I'm beginning to worry about this just a little bit. There was a little feeling of trepidation as the day grew nearer. And then finally, like everything, oh boy, I'll tell you, uh, how often are you reminded in your life that you can put things off, but they always happen? That, that, that there are things that are inevitable in life and they approach like like some distant shore. They just keep coming and coming and, and they don't stop. In other words, t- you, you can put it off. You can put off in your mind uh, that, that one day you're going to have to make a decision about something, but it has to come and will come. Well, time one day arrived and there it was. We were told to go down to the railroad station at 8 o'clock in the morning. And by now, I'm terrified. I'm scared out of my skull. I'm really scared. I've got my mattress cover all rolled up. And you're supposed to put all of these things in what they called a duffel bag. Well, now, you know, all my mother had was one of these cardboard suitcases. You know, the kind you get at Woolworth, a cardboard suitcase with a mottled interior with the imitation leather on the outside with the gold clasp. We had two of those. Cardboard suitcase. We never went anywhere, you know. Duffel bag. And, and we had finally been able to scrounge up at an army store this big brown bag with a great big brown strap on the side of it that said QMC. <laughs> and, of course, it was, a, it, was a, it was a surplus army duffel bag. And there I am with my mattress cover. And, of course, the duffel bag is about 14 feet long and about 7 feet wide. And I got about, you know, enough to fill one little potato sack full of stuff in it. I got a pair of tennis shoes and I got my waterproof matchbox and I got an axe in there. <laughs> and I got all my stuff back. And I got this giant bag and, and my father puts me in the car. My mother's sitting in the front. My kid brother's in the back and I'm going to camp. I'm, I'm going, you know. I'm going away for two weeks. Me. 
I'm leaving. I see Bruner and all the kids standing around in the street. You know, Bruner and Flick. They ain't going. You know, these these guys were terrible. Even worse, Boy Scouts. And I was there. They're all standing around, and I'm taking off. It was you know, it was a, it was a little squirt, twelve years old, and we start going down the street and I start getting this wild panic in the, in, in the gut, you know, just an insane scare, it's just a terrible fear. And we're heading towards the railroad station. I had never even been on a railroad train. I mean, I saw the trains. You see the trains going up and down all the time, but I had never been on a train. You know, here I am. I'm going on the train. I'm going to the railroad station, and I'm going to go on the train by myself with a bunch of guys I didn't even know. There was, you know, one kid was from my troop or something. One of the kids, one of the other kids had won. But these were troop. These were kids from all over, like all over Chicago. I didn't know any of these people. And, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm really starting to sweat inside. Well, we travel all the way in to the to the railroad station, which had been this big, mysterious place. I just saw this. It was a place you saw, and you'd hear about it once in a while, and you'd go once in a great while and meet somebody there, and suddenly I'm there, and here are all those kids, Boy Scouts, and they were big. You know, this is what, they were big kids. You know, here are these big lunks, big square-looking jaws. There's, there's Jack Armstrong is there already now, you know, and all these square, blue-eyed guys are standing around with their uniforms, and it's like Tom Slade, and, and uh, all these guys out of the stories, they're all standing, they got packs on their backs, and knives, and jackrabbits, and everything all hanging on them, and their mothers and fathers, and guys with Cadillacs, and they're all out there, there's about a thousand of them, and here, I, you know, I got my duffel bag, and, and I can absolutely find none of the kids that I knew, you know, the two kids I knew that were coming, uh, they were absolutely gone, it was, it was, like, a, it was like an army encampment, some of the nine million kids there, and the only person there that I, I only person there was my Aunt Clara. My Aunt Clara had come down. <laughs> she was going to see me off the camp, which made it even worse. Because when a relative comes all the way in from the north side to come and see this happen, it's like a graduation, something you, know, you never bargained for this jazz. And I'm standing there, and I'm getting this wild, insane fear. And I'm, you know, I can feel my stomach. Is, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm standing, and all the kids are standing. And everybody knew everybody. That's the first thing you learn about when you get into some new organization there's a secret thing. Everybody knows everybody else, but you don't know nobody. And they don't look at you. And in fact, when they do, it's like, oh, look at that little fat one. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, that guy literally a little slob over there. It's, you know, have you ever, do you know the terrible feeling? Uh, any guy who's been in the Army knows this feeling of arriving in a camp and everybody's in. Uh, everybody knows everybody else. At least they seem to. The whistles blow. They know where to go. They all run the right direction without anybody telling them. Uh, or somebody says, hey, hey, you look down at that. What? What? Number seven. Everybody knows. You say, what? What? Oh, number seven. What? Uh, what? No, look, look at what? 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 Well, uh, there I am, completely lost. The train is waiting, and my mother is saying, now look, now, now you, you listen to what they say there, and uh, don't, don't give them trouble. Just, just keep your mouth shut. Don't give them trouble. And don't holler. And, uh, <laughs> and don't, and don't drag your feet. You're always dragging your feet. You can't drag your feet now when you're at camp and stand up straight. Uh, I, and, of course, all these other kids around, there's real, these tall, straight kids, all six feet, seven inches tall, blonde-looking kids with lanyards around their neck, you know, with the gold piping and all. And she says, stand up straight. Don't just stand up. Please stand up. Pull up your knickers, will you? And I'm, I'm trying to look like a Boy Scout. <laughs> I'm standing there. My uniform is hanging on me. Well, well. 
I am getting scared. I'm telling you, I'll never forget that moment. To, I have to refer back to Ed Pettit's remark. There's nothing happier than a kid who knows he's going to camp. Well, he knows he's going to camp. He's happy when he's thinking about going to camp. But when he's going to camp, believe me, he is on the verge of a full-fledged, completely deteriorating case of hysterics. Many kids. And so the final big... Um, oh, Jesus, what was that terrible moment? The terrible moment finally arrived, and, and this guy got up, and the big top Boy Scout, he wasn't a Boy Scout, you know, one of these men that's always running things, you know, running for mayor and everything, he runs all over. He's, all right, men, all right, boys, uh, all of you now will line up, and, and but they're lining up, and the mothers are retreating back behind the gates, and I am alone. I see my mother on the other side of the gates. My father is back there. He's, you know, he wants to get, he wants to go home now already. He's had this. My kid brother's sort of looking big eyes. He's looking, <laughs> and I'm, 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 I'm hey, 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 they're waving, and I'm waving, and the kids, all the rest of the kids are very official, like they've been going to camp all of their life. Uh, this is just another one of the routine camp goings. They're meeting all their old friends. Where they know these, where there are people who know that. Have you ever had the feeling that, that people all seem to be official on a bus? That they all know, you know, they all got the right seats. They they all, and, and you're, you're kind of an interloper. Well, there I am. And finally, I am herded into the cars along with about 25,000 other kids. And, and I sit down at a seat. He says, grab your seat. And of course, I'm on the outside. There's some other big lunk out the window right away. I'm sitting on the outside, very far away from this big, tall guy with a blonde hair who's hollering at all. Hey, Jerry, hell, forget, hey, Jerry, hey. He pushes me aside. Get out of my way, kid. Hey, hey, Mac. And they're yelling, and I'm squinched down in the seat. I'm on my way to camp with a bunch of enemies. I am about to go to camp with all the guys that hit me. <laughs> These are the guys that I spent my entire life running away from on school, and I'm going to camp with them. And bam, 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 bam. The train starts to go, and the station starts to move outside the window. And, and, and I'm looking around, and you, 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 know, you don't know whether to cry or to just sit or to look or what. And you're sitting, you know, you can't cry. I mean, there you are with a bunch of Eagle Scouts and stuff. Got my big second-class pin and Dan Beard medal on and all that stuff. And I'm sitting there, my Woodcraft merit badge, which I earned on the south side, tracking down difficult-to-find fire hydrants. I've got my I've got my woodcraft hat, and we're taking off going to camp. I have never been outside of this area, really, you know, by myself. And finally, there it is. The train is rolling, and the the big boy scout, the big one, walks up and down. And he's talking to the boys. All right, he said. Now look, he said, uh, Jerry. Now look, Jerry. I want you to take over the section here. He knew all the big kids. He knew it was, it was like a club. It was getting even worse. You know, it was the, 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 the head man knew the kids. All right, Jerry says, listen, Mac. Uh, look, Mac, I want you to uh, please take it easy, Mac. Not like last time. Last time. Uh, I, uh, you know, it's the in group. They all know each other. They're, oh, come on, Mr. Clombayak. Oh, uh, and they're yelling and hollering. And, and I noticed sitting around in the car about ten other kids that were scrunched way down in their seats. And <laughs> with their hats pulled on, sitting there, trying to look, you know, looking out the window. And, and about five minutes after we got going, I hear a kid up near the front of the car crying. 
I just hear crying going on. And I hear this crying, and I see the boss man, the big Boy Scout. You know, very few things look sillier than a grown-up man wearing a Boy Scout uniform, but they always do it. And this grown-up Boy Scout man is going up to the front there, and I see him bending over. He's a big, lunky-looking guy and a big, heavy-set man. And he is talking to the to the to this poor little kid who's crying. And he turns around. He says, "Oh, it's all right." Hits him on the shoulder. It's all right. You'll be okay. Why? When you get the old Beaver Kill camp, why? Hi, right, George. Hey, Jerry, come on down and take care of uh, what you say your name. Take care of old Howie here. <laughs> Howie's sitting there, and you know this big guy gets up next to me. And he says, right, "Get out of my way, kid." And he pushes me down, and he goes down the aisle. Well, I, I realize you see that there are other defeated guys in this crew. Well, I do not have to tell you the first afternoon at Camp Beaverkill with the rain coming down and, and the oh, it's just pouring down cats and dogs and we're all standing around and all of the other, the big kids are standing around in the back of the of the various cabins telling dirty jokes. <laughs> and they got all kinds of little jazzy books they're passing back and forth and they're telling dirty jokes and once in a while somebody blows a whistle and a bunch of guys go out and start to try to start a fire or somebody starts to throw a tennis ball around and I was in camp and it was absolutely rotten I hated it oh boy did I hate it they're playing with a tennis ball I want to play I want to knock out flies out next to Flick's house you know where they really play ball and here they are they're, they're the guys and then somebody hey listen I'll tell you one time you see there was this this Irish maid coming <laughs> and, what is and, and, and uh, I was hearing language which I had only you know I had only heard faint inklings of you know I was supposed to say it so the little kids little squirts they're sitting around saying hey damn hey hey damn hey hey <laughs> you know they're trying <laughs> well I could tell you that two weeks was sheer unadulterated torture it got worse and worse and worse and worse until finally the one day came when we all went out on what they called a camp out we all went out into the woods as a camp out and took with us a can of chili apiece. <laughs> and we got out in the woods and, and they, they, they started these little fires. And by this time, I learned to keep my mouth shut, stay in the back. And when they all hollered, put your potatoes in, I just went up, stuck my potato in the fire and stood back. And I didn't, I didn't volunteer for nothing. When they had the canoe races, I just stood. When they had the swimming races, I just stood, along with 45 other little guys with their hats pulled out. <laughs> well, we got out to this place, and they gave us each a can of chili. And we put the chilies in the can, you know, in the big pot. Each one of us had the three kids to a fire. We put them in the pot with the water boiling, getting the things heated. We opened up the cans. And about five minutes later, I don't know whether you ever, have you ever been a 12-year-old kid who have eaten a complete can of broadcast chili, a complete can of broadcast chili in about five minutes flat? Well, let me tell you, it took five minutes to get in and 18 milliseconds to come out. Boom! All over. <laughs> and about three days later, I'm home and my mom says, how did you like camp? How do you like camp? <laughs> 